Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. The purpose of the 1619 Project, as stated by the New York Times, is to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. 1619 is the year a ship called the White Lion landed near the English colony of Jamestown, bringing with it more than 20 enslaved people from Africa. This happened one year before the Mayflower arrived at Plymouth Rock. The 1619 Project starts with this important piece of history, and through a series of essays, it demonstrates how the foundations of inequality in the United States have persisted through our history in law and imprisonment, income inequality, healthcare, culture, and so much more. It also highlights many of the untold stories and accomplishments of Black Americans. The project was the brainchild of journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her work, and the 1619 Project has continued to evolve. It started as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine, a website, and a podcast. It became a curriculum developed in conjunction with the Pulitzer Center. It is now a brand new book, a children's book, and a docu-series produced by Oprah Winfrey is in progress. Many journalists, historians, poets, artists, and others have contributed along the way. The project also found itself on the front lines of today's politically charged culture wars, and Hannah Jones herself has been a personal target. And Nicole Hannah Jones is on the line with me now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And it feels hard to believe that there are still a lot of people who aren't really familiar with the 1619 Project and many others who've heard the name 1619 Project, but don't really understand what it's about. So as you have just now published this book version of the project, tell me a little bit about what you were hoping when you first launched this project with telling the story of that ship that landed in 1619. Well, when I um, created the project, my hope was to, one, just um, put the year 1619 into the national lexicon. It was a date that had largely been erased from historical memory. It wasn't a date that school children regularly learned or uh, that most Americans knew. And yet I believe that it is one of the most foundational dates in American history because um, the decision 400 years ago to purchase enslaved Africans would shape so much about the country that would come. It would be a factor in the American Revolution. It would be a factor, um, you know, in how our country nearly uh, dissolved during the Civil War. Um, some of our worst societal tensions that we see now go back to that moment. Um, so I really wanted to um, bring that, that date kind of out of the obscurity of history. And then I wanted uh, to through a series of essays, uh, show how that legacy of, of a foundational American institution continues to shape the society that we live in in very many ways, even though we don't often realize it. So there's essays on capitalism and, and uh, American capitalism roots in slavery, on um, traffic patterns and how that goes back to the anti-Blackness that develops out of slavery. Everything from you know why Americans 
consume so much sugar to democracy itself. Um, and it was just a way uh, for us to understand that uh, an institution that was practiced in this country for 250 years um, still shapes so much about our society, even though we don't know it. The book version has just been released, and it is, as I mentioned, it's continued to evolve. So the book version is is larger and deeper and includes essays from many other contributors. It also includes photographs and poetry and short essays or even pieces of fiction. Tell me about your vision for this book. Well, you know, this book um, had to be broad. Um, It had to really, to me, if you are going to try to encapsulate a 400-year story in one text, um, then it has to come at that story from many different um, entry points. So there are photos. um, And the photos are archival photos of regular Black Americans through time. Some go all the way back to the invention of uh, the camera. all the way to the present. And each one of those photos is a reminder before you start each essay that everything that we're talking about is not abstract, that uh, these horrors um, were done to human beings uh, and that these were human beings who had the same wants, hopes, desires, loves, pains as anyone else. Then we also have um, more than 30 pieces of fiction short fiction and poetry and what is a literary timeline. So uh, they are some of the nation's greatest writers who are reimagining these different points in in the history of America involving Black Americans. And then, of course, there are the essays, most of them written by uh, historians and uh, the others written by journalists. And so I say that this book is uh, a testament and a testimony. So it is a testament to uh, the resiliency of Black Americans and that out of that first original 20 to 30, uh, we now have more than 30 million um, descendants of American slavery, and they have indelibly shaped this country. And it is, um, you know, it is a testimony to how much of a force both slavery and Black resistance has been in uh, the American narrative. From the very beginning of the 1619 Project, your first essay, you introduce us to your father and and to young Nicole. And you do a beautiful job throughout this, this series on the podcast and in the magazine, really making sure that we connect these facts and this information with humans. And in reading the book, seeing these photographs just hit even harder, especially the fact that so many of the photographs, we don't know the names of the individuals who were in these photos. Their names have been lost to time, probably because no one considered it to be important to record them. Yes, this is, um, you know, one of the the sad things about the American story is um for many, many, many decades, archivists didn't think that it was important to uh, collect the histories um, and and the possessions of Black Americans. It wasn't seen as worthy. Uh, we still see that to a degree today. Uh, part of the reason that 
we had to do the literary timeline, this reimagining of historic events, is because Black Americans are the only people in the history of our country for whom it was ever illegal to learn how to read and write. So you don't have the richness of kind of archival texts for these moments in Black history because uh, where white Americans were able to write journals and send letters to each other and write books about their experiences. Most Black Americans were not. Most Black Americans were forcibly and legally uh, made illiterate. So when we were thinking about how do we talk about these historic moments, um, this is when the editor-in-chief of the magazine, Jake Silverstein, said, well, what if we have the descendants reimagine these moments so that we can still get these historic moments from a Black perspective. Um, So that is, to me, such an important part of what this book is trying to do, which is to fill in for that erasure. Um, I talk about this in my opening essay, the preface for the book, that that erasure of the Black experience, of Black agency, of the Black presence, of Black people as actors in the American story, that erasure Uh, is as powerful as what we are taught. Because when we are not taught to think about these things or to understand the role that Black Americans played, we fill in that gap with the presumption that Black people haven't done much worthy of knowing um, and that slavery was just an asterisk to the American story and that anti-Blackness was somehow banished um, after 350 years legal anti-Blackness with the civil rights movement. Uh, So this book is trying to force us um, to reckon with this truth by filling in um, so many of the gaps that all of us, no matter our race, uh, grow up with in this country. I'm Charity Nebbe. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back to the conversation in a moment. You're listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. My guest this hour is Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project, which is now out in book form. And Nicole, you and I actually grew up just a few miles apart physically. I grew up in Cedar Falls while you were growing up in Waterloo. And for anybody familiar with that metropolitan area, you know that in some ways we were many, many miles apart. I went to almost entirely white schools throughout all of my education. And honestly, I was in my mid-20s when I had the realization that my understanding of black history in this country was really almost non-existent. I have spent a lot of years trying to learn about black history. And opening up the 1619 Project was really a transformational moment for me because all of a sudden, all of those pieces of the puzzle that I had collected over the years fit together. It gave me as a reader and a podcast listener just a so much clearer understanding of the country that we are all from. I'm sure you've heard this from so many people. What do people tell you about 
how the 1619 Project has transformed their thinking. Thank you for for sharing that um, story with me, because that is a very common experience. I mean, that was my experience when I first started studying uh, African-American history and um, it, it was transformative. I mean, that I, I've said often that the reason I fell in love with history was when I started to study history, all of a sudden, a world that didn't really make sense to me um, based off of uh, the explanations that we were getting in popular media, um, you know, from politicians about the landscape that we saw. Um, I was, you were right, uh, Cedar Falls and Waterloo were miles apart when I was growing up. Um, everyone knew Black people couldn't live in Cedar Falls and that this wasn't uh, a place that Black people would be welcome to. And so we didn't go. Um, and I was bused starting in the second grade out of um, my Black neighborhood in Waterloo into white neighborhoods with uh, their white schools so that I could get a good education. And I didn't understand why I had to leave my neighborhood to get a good education when the white students could just walk out of their house and down the street to get that education. And I didn't understand why when we got to the West side, um, they had all these businesses and restaurants and stores and nicer parks and the housing was better. And what we were told was um, black people just didn't want better and didn't work hard. And yet my family worked extremely hard. They worked at beef packing plants. They worked, um, you know, at John Deere. They did roofing. They were working very, very physically taxing jobs. Um, you know, my dad worked at, when I was very young at, at Raft and he would come home. Uh, black people had to do the dirtiest jobs in that, uh, in that meat packing plant. And he would come home with his bloody clothes, change, shower, and then put on his orderly uniform so that he could go to a second job. And so I knew that the narratives that Black people were just lazy or didn't want to fix up their houses were not true. And yet I had no other explanation for it. So when I started studying history, things just started to make sense. I, I learned that our neighborhood had been redlined by the federal government, making it almost impossible for Black people to get loans to purchase homes and fix up their homes. I learned that there were, even within the meatpacking plants, a hierarchy of jobs, and Black people had the most difficult jobs with the lowest pay. Um, I learned that Black people had been kept out of labor unions for uh, most of the history of this country, meaning they were unable to organize for better uh, working conditions and better pay. So when you start to see that history, then all of a sudden the world starts to make sense. And that is the same, I mean, that is what propelled me to do the 1619 Project. And that is what I have heard from readers of all races and all ages, is that no one ever taught us any of this. And now I have a deeper understanding of, you know, why would a police officer think, a white police officer that he could kill a man in front of witnesses and have no concern that he would uh, have repercussions. Why, why did we have an insurrection on the Capitol uh, where um, Republicans have decided that a um, legitimate election is not legitimate because too many black and brown people voted? Um, 
the history we've been taught doesn't explain the country that we live in. And uh, I'm trying to counter that. And people have embraced that. Um, people have been grateful for a better understanding of their country. But of course, uh, it is because people have embraced it that you've also seen uh, the intense backlash to the project as well, including um, in our home state of Iowa. So I think something a lot of people may not know about you is that in addition to being a journalist, you are a trained historian. That was what your undergraduate studies were in at Notre Dame University. And before the 1619 Project, you were already combining those two passions and getting a MacArthur Genius Grant and and other things um, recognition for that, illuminating so many important issues in education. I want to ask you, though, about being a journalist and being an advocate, because I I think that that is something that some people have a hard time understanding. You are bringing yourself to your journalism and a specific point of view. Was that difficult to embrace? No, not for me, because that's why I became a journalist. I became a journalist because I didn't feel that mainstream media was accurately uh, representing my community. And I didn't think that mainstream media was accurately grappling with uh, the roots of racial inequality. So I became a journalist because of my identity and because of um, feeling that as uh, as was stated in the very first Black newspaper, the Freedom's Journal, we wish to plead our own cause. No longer uh, shall others speak for us. So in the tradition of the Black press, there's never um, been a pretense of uh, I'm just here neutrally to report on what's happening. Um, Black people have always had to um, engage in journalism that was trying to win and um, vindicate their community's rights. And I would also say, um, I don't believe that any journalism is objective. And I don't believe that most journalism is neutral, no matter who are the practitioners. White journalists are certainly covering um, the world from a racialized perspective, just like Black journalists are. But they often don't recognize that that's how they're covering the world. Um, Most of my career, I've been an education reporter. And um, when I won uh, the highest award for education reporting for my coverage of school segregation, in my speech, I talked to the room of mostly white education reporters. And I said, you haven't been covering the primary driver of educational inequality in this country, which is school segregation. You have ignored it. And that means you haven't been doing your jobs. But that's because um, most of those journalists were white women who didn't grow up in failing schools, who grew up in white segregated schools and didn't realize that was segregation, who had a very different experience of this educational uh, systems in this country. And that clouded their perspectives. So I believe that all journalism to a degree, is activism. When you go to the Washington Post, the the motto of the Washington Post is democracy dies in darkness. That's not a neutral position. That's the belief that democracy matters. That's the belief that the journalist's role is to hold power accountable, that the journalist's role is to uphold our democracy. That's not neutral. So I think we have to um, stop talking about journalism is activism only when we're talking about journalists of color. Uh, I think journalists of color are just more honest about the fact 
uh, that their experience and and their desire to build a more just society um, that that motivates their work. But I don't know a reporter who doesn't want to do journalism that makes change. You know, you don't you don't do investigative reporting because you just want people to know something exists. You do investigative reporting so that people will respond to the wrongdoing and make it right. Uh, a reporter who's covering child protective services, failing a child and a child dies, doesn't write that story just so the public can be informed. They write that story because they believe the children should be protected and they want the government to be held accountable. And that's uh, the work that I do is in that tradition. I, I want to ask you about the final chapter of the 1619 Project book. It's an essay called Justice, written by you. And again, in this chapter, you share little told and, and little understood stories about Black Americans working for justice. You also write about the history that we are living right now, giving it the same weight as the, the, the rest of the history that you write about in the 1619 Project, although we don't yet know what impact this historical moment will have long term. Is it important, do you think, for all of us to understand the historical weight of this moment? Yes, absolutely. Um, it is hard to uh, really assess what's happening in real time or how uh, critical uh, the moment is. But I am very worried. Um, I think our democracy is actually at a uh, inflection point. Um, what we're seeing is not politics as usual. Uh, this is not a partisan argument, but I've been reading recently a lot of experts on democracy and how democracies fail um, and what we're seeing in terms of the extreme gerrymandering that ensures Republicans uh, can retain power even if they lose the majority of votes, uh, the efforts to make it easy for Republicans to overturn elections that they don't like, uh, these anti-history laws. So the so-called anti-critical race theory law that got passed in Iowa and are getting passed all across the country are really anti-history laws. And um, historian Tim Snyder calls them memory laws. And he talks about how you see these same types of laws getting passed uh, in countries as they slide into authoritarianism because it is a way to control the national memory and the national narrative and make poor policies more acceptable. Um, I think that if you study history, uh, we're seeing something very similar to what happened when Reconstruction failed. And I'm not arguing uh, that we are in that period. You know, history never repeats itself, but it certainly echoes itself. And you didn't see the slide from um, that brief period of, of true multiracial democracy during uh, Reconstruction to uh, Black people going back into a, a complete apartheid state. Um, it didn't happen overnight. It happened one law at a time. It was a, a slow sliding. And, um, you know, the Iowa that we grew up in was politically a much more balanced state. Um, it was a much more tolerant state. It You didn't see kind of this far right extremism that um, that we're seeing now. And um, I, I can't say, tell you how profoundly disappointing it is that uh, my own state would seek to uh, prohibit the teaching of my work when it was uh, in an Iowa classroom. 
that I uh, received the transformative experience that allowed me to have the type of success I've had. Um, so I think people need to be very, very concerned. And this is why uh, the study of history is so important, because it gives us uh, an insight into what's happening uh, at a time when, you know, in the midst of it, it can be hard to figure it out. Iowa native Nicole Hannah-Jones. She is the creator of the 1619 Project, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, an author, and a professor. We recorded this conversation in November of 2021 when the book, The 1619 Project, was released. The 1619 Project is also now an Emmy Award-winning miniseries on Hulu. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. There is a unique Iowa history attraction in West Des Moines. It's the Jordan House, an imposing structure, a Victorian home of Italianate Gothic design. It's one of the oldest buildings in Polk County and the oldest in West Des Moines. And it is celebrated in particular for one element of its history. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad, the Freedom Trail. Gail Brubecker is executive director of the West Des Moines Historical Society, and she's here to talk to us about the Jordan House. Hello, Gail. Hello, Miss Nebby. Nice to talk to you. Well, lovely to have you here. And let's go way, way, way back in time to when James Jordan, who built this home, came to Iowa way back in 1844. So he was a, a cattle rancher from Virginia. What brought him to the Iowa Territory? The part of the country that he was from originally was a slaveholding state. We now know it as West Virginia. And the family decided they had to, for moral reasons, move west and uh, live in a free state. So the plan was to go to Oregon. But Iowa is a heck of a lot closer. At this point, they were living in Missouri. So James and his brother John were the Iowa equivalent of Sooners. They snuck up to the territory before they were legally allowed to, to check out the area. And my gosh, it's absolutely perfect for shorthorn cattle ranching. So that's what brought them up here. All right. So yes, when we say 1844, uh, Iowa wasn't opened up to settlement until 1845. Correct. So these Southern men were just so charming. The soldiers at the Fort Des Moines, instead of kicking them out, which they should have done, said, let us show you this absolutely amazing part of central Iowa, where there's plentiful water, open grazing, amazing walnut trees to build a beautiful home. And that's why we have the Jordan House today. All right. Well, I, and I want to talk about this family. I want to talk about the Jordan House. But I do want to acknowledge that, of course, when this land was settled, it's not like this land was vacant. We're going to talk about the Jordan's role in helping freedom seekers find their way to safety. But also this land was taken from Native people. And so they were a part of that process as well. We have a long, complicated history. So let's, uh, let's talk about uh, when they first built a structure here in Iowa. Of course, this wasn't West Des Moines. <laughs> this, this didn't become West Des Moines for a very, very long time. So they, they were obviously in a very rural area. 
Oh, very rural. And that is part of the reason why it works so well to be part of the Underground Railroad. There were no neighbors around to check out what these Jordans were doing. But yes, uh, the stories that we have been told is that the nearest permanent neighbors were in Carlisle. So this was an incredibly rural uh, protected area. And this family must have been very successful because we look at the structure now and it is a, a beautiful, beautiful, ornate old home. Tell me how the family found their way to, to so much wealth and success. Well, there's a lot of money at that time in shorthorn cattle and also a lot of land speculation. The Jordan family even his mom, were amazing real estate flippers for the time. They would move to a state such as Michigan, where the Jordan brothers met and married the Pittman sisters, buy up farms, kind of uh, pad their coffers, sell their cattle, and then move on to a new place. So that is how they were able to become so wealthy. But I, I do need to point out the house is an amazing shape and a beautiful landmark because of the work of a lot of volunteers and support from donors, uh, especially the city of West Des Moines. There would be no Jordan House today if it wasn't for those volunteers and the city's support. Well, in fact, the, the house was almost burned down as an exercise for the fire department, right? Exactly. Can you even imagine? What a uh, it, it was, oh, thank goodness that people got together and got fired up, no pun intended, to save this building. Because while it is an amazing building and structure, I think it is also this fantastic symbol for the, the fight for freedom the fight for doing what is right for your fellow man and woman. So I really appreciate it just as an amazing place to come to work every day, but also what it stands for. So the Jordans wanted to come to Iowa or originally Oregon because they wanted to live in a free state. Do we know what kind of experience James Jordan had that, that made him feel so strongly as an abolitionist? We do. Uh, his immediate family, his parents did not own enslaved people, but he did have family members who lived close by in Virginia that did. When he was a young man, James was forced to go on a slave hunt. Uh, a group of the enslaved individuals owned by his family had made a run for it, and James was forced to go and help. And they caught them, and these human beings fell to their knees and begged God to save them. Obviously, that didn't happen, and James wrote about how horrifying that experience was. And he was an abolitionist for what we would say are the right reasons. He truly believed in the, the freedom and humanity of other people, regardless of the color of their skin. And he was a Methodist. Methodists and Quakers at that time had very strong abolitionist beliefs as a general rule. So he, he was talking the talk and walking the walk, definitely. Now, in recent years, uh, we have learned a great deal more about the Underground Railroad in Iowa. Of course, records weren't kept of the activities of the Underground Railroad because keeping records put people at risk. And the late Doug Jones, who worked for the Office of the State Archaeologist, and Lowell Soiki, they have done so much research that has really uncovered some incredible stories and elements of this Freedom Trail in Iowa. How do we know about the Jordan House and the Underground Railroad? 
Well, James was pretty out in the open uh, about what he was doing and what his beliefs were. He was one of the very first Republicans in Iowa. Uh, here at the Jordan House, one of the things that we have that is original is a lithograph of Abraham Lincoln hanging over the fireplace. And the family has told us that's that was there until the day James died in 1891. So if you are not out in the open about what you believe in and what you're doing, you're not going to have a picture of the president, the deceased president, who was really hated by a large chunk of the population. Uh, John Brown, who that radical abolitionist, wrote about his visits to the Jordan House, especially with this last group of freedom seekers that he liberated and escorted to Canada. And they were actually here on February 17th, 1859. So we know that they stayed with the wagons up at the top of the hill on the Jordan property and most likely did come to the house for food and clothing and medical treatment. So uh, John Brown was a great storyteller and he that is one of the stories that he told that we're so proud of. And you also have evidence of James Jordan corresponding with other abolitionists in Iowa as well, like yes, Josiah this, Grinnell, for example. This state was a hotbed of abolitionists, so it's something that I think we should all be proud of. And, you know, let's be realistic. These people, like Jordan and Grinnell and Grimes, Governor Grimes, were protected to a certain extent because of their wealth and the color of their skin. There were plenty of folks who we don't know about, especially the um, freedom seekers who self-liberated, we will never know their stories, unfortunately. So that's why I think it's important to try to be as inclusive and open as possible and celebrate all of their lives, not not just the, the wealthy folks who were protected from possible federal persecution. Yeah, and could take these risks to help people. Yes. I think a lot of people, when they first learn about the Underground Railroad, of course, that fills your mind with all kinds of images and ideas, one of them being uh, places to hide underground. So at at the Jordan House, <laughs> a lot of people want to think that, that freedom seekers would have found shelter in the cellar, but that's not what happened. So tell me what we know about how the people at the Jordan House would help people. Well, from what we have learned, and as I said, we have a letter from John Brown talking about how he left the freedom seekers up at the top of the hill, which makes sense. There were a lot of people chasing John Brown and their group on this last trip across Iowa. So you would much rather be at the top of a hill or in a, hidden in a barn or in the middle of a cornfield if the slave catchers were coming to get you. Uh, but we do know that one of the things that the women did who were part of the Underground Railroad, we, they would get together and have weekly sessions of knitting and preserving food and sewing clothing. So when the freedom seekers came in, came through, they would get care packages from the families. So let's also celebrate the role of women as part of the Underground Railroad and helping freedom seekers. When people visit the Jordan House, uh, how do they learn about this history? We have guided tours every Friday and Sunday, and we have a lot of folks, especially schools, that come through and have guided tours, and we also offer schools free virtual tours. So if you are not in the West Des Moines, Des Moines area, 
give us a call. We will take you on a walk in the footsteps of history virtually. And we just love that. We love being able to provide access to everybody regardless of where they live. And why do you think it's important to have this really tangible reminder of the fight for equality? I think a lot of times we need to see things to be reminded of what our history is. Um, unfortunately, it feels like we are forgetting history and in some cases repeating negative parts of it. So here we have a building that is absolutely stunning, but it also sends a message. One person can make a tremendous difference in a lot of lives. We will never know how many freedom seekers actually came through the Jordan house. We have photographs actually of Henry Bell, uh, a freedom seeker who allegedly was helped by the Jordans and settled in Des Moines and became an amazing respected businessman, he and his wife. What a difference one person reaching out, doing what is right, made in Henry Bell's life and his wife's life. Who else can we help by doing the right thing? You also make an effort at the Jordan House to connect the dots between slavery then and slavery or human trafficking now. Tell me about that. Well, we talk about the Underground, underground Railroad as a concept was going on well before the Civil War and that slavery is not over. There are still uncounted millions of women and children who are enslaved, whether it be through um, sexual enslavement or uh, in factories, things like that. And that we have to recognize our own humanity and responsibility to our, our fellow human beings as we move forward. So we don't want people to think that history is something that is uh, a perfect dragonfly stuck in amber. History still has repercussions today, and what happened in the past can certainly impact and influence how we act today. So you mentioned the thousands of hours of volunteer effort and, and fundraising and labor that went into saving this house. Is this still a, a big volunteer effort for the Historical Society? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, we are always working on the Jordan House and our other property, which is the Bennett School, a one-room school museum. And uh, we love our volunteers and we couldn't do what we do without them. So uh, one of our big projects that was started a few years ago are historical gardens, both a kitchen garden and a flower garden here in the front yard of the Jordan House. I do not have a green thumb, so we have a couple volunteers who have started working every year to get these gardens to be just absolutely stunning, and we appreciate them so much. So if anybody is interested in helping out as a volunteer or becoming a member, our members help us keep the lights on and the doors open. Gail, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Charity. I've been talking with Gail Brubaker, Executive Director of the West Des Moines Historical Society, and we've been focusing on the Jordan House. It's the oldest structure in West Des Moines, and it was a stop on the Underground Railroad, the Freedom Trail. You're listening to an encore edition of Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe.